0: Alright, well, we are back in our study of Philippians, so if you would, open up in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And if you've been with us over the last few Thursdays, you'll remember that in this letter, Paul has transitioned from describing his circumstances to addressing the Philippians directly in this letter. So you remember how he opened the letter, the first couple paragraphs he spent talking about his imprisonment and how he's thinking about that, that passage that was so impactful to us, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and just how he was, he was working through all that. But he pivots at the end of chapter 1, really in verse 27, he kind of pivots from talking about his circumstances to the, the Philippians themselves. He addresses them directly. And in verse 27, he gave that clarion call, that central command of the entire letter, and it's said the church should live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right, so you remember that? it's Kind of the central command, the central thrust of the letter. It's what he wants to see these Philippians doing and continue to do. And he, he tells us that as Christians, we've been rescued by Christ the King. And we've become citizens of His heavenly realm. And the King of Heaven has left us here. He's left us here to colonize this evil earth with the gospel message. He's left us to evangelize and plant little colonies of heaven. We know we're going to certainly face opposition, Paul says, but Paul tells us not to be scared, not to be afraid. And shrink back. God is on our side, he says. We're going to advance. And ultimately, we ourselves will be fully delivered when that king of heaven returns. But in the meantime, Christ, his plan is to to ransom others, rescue others through us. And transfer them into his own heavenly kingdom. But if we're going to advance in the midst of this culture, this evil culture... Paul says we have to advance together. We've got to be unified. We have to adopt that same way of thinking, the same mindset. And the tuning fork, the one to whom we rally behind, is our king. We need to think and act like the king of heaven. We need to adopt his goal as the greatest goal of our lives. We need to love each other like he's loved us. We need to reject every motive of selfishness and self-importance. We saw that last week. We need to see others in the body as more significant than we are. Our lives need to be focused on serving and meeting the needs of others. Just to put it simply, our little colony of heaven right here at Timberlake, it needs to progressively resemble heaven's ethics. It needs to resemble the attitude of our king. And notice, that is exactly what Paul calls us to in verse 5 of chapter 2. So, he called us to that, we saw last week. Back in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. He calls us to this mindset, and then he he describes that mindset. And he comes back around in in verse 5, and he calls us to it again. He says, Have this mindset, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So after he describes this mindset in the first four verses, he calls us to it again, and then he tells us that this is the very mindset of Christ Himself. So, if you're reading from an ESV, just I'm just curious again, just show of hands, how many is reading from an ESV? New American Standard, NIV. Oh, you guys are in for a treat tonight, you NIVers. This is that's a, that's a good translation for tonight's passage. Okay. The ESV translates this as it says, have the, mi- have the mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus. But a better translation a, a, uh, that's more faithful to the Greek text is, Have this mindset which is also in Christ Jesus. Similar to the NASB. This mindset is also in Christ Jesus. He's saying that Christ is, he exemplifies this humble mindset. He exemplifies the mindset that considers others as more significant than himself, and dramatically so. And so in the verses that follow, the verses we're going to look at tonight, Paul tells us how Christ's example really exemplifies this humility, this mindset. He shows us the greatest act of humility that this this world has ever seen. The most dramatic condescension conceivable to the human mind. And that's when God became man and gave Himself up to be shamefully executed as a common criminal. Paul gives us a window into the shockingly humble heart of our Saviour. He gives us a glimpse into the radical self-abasement He willingly embraced for us. And he, He spends significant time in this chapter developing this because He wants us to see just how humble Christ is. Because He knows that the only way for the church to truly cultivate this humble mindset is to have a glorious view of the humility of her King. It's the only way. Because you see, when when Christ calls you to consider others as more important than yourself, He's not telling you to do anything He hasn't already done for you. And that He hasn't done for you to the greatest degree. He is simply calling you to show to others a glimpse of what you have already experienced in full from Him. In fact, you could argue that it's our very realization of the humility of our Savior. It's the very experience of it in our lives that generates and incentivizes our own humility. Our own desire to put others' needs ahead of our own is is birthed from this experience of Christ's humility. When you realize that Christ humbled Himself to the absolute lowest point imaginable, that he served you to the greatest possible extent, that he endured the worst type of shame and death because he loves you, that puts an indelible mark on your soul. It has a transforming and humbling effect. And that also means then that if you're proud, if you're critical, if you're judgmental, If you think that others exist to serve you, if you demand your rights and your privileges, if you're easily offended, that reveals that you're either ignorant of the humility of Christ or that you have forgotten that your Savior is gentle and lowly. It might reveal that we've temporarily forgotten how He he refused to let us serve Him first and how He first served us to the greatest extent. Washing our feet at the cross, so to speak. It reveals that we need to learn a lot more about what he endured for us and about how he calls us to take up this lowliness of heart toward others. But what's even more interesting about this text that we're going to look at tonight is Paul doesn't simply describe the mindset. He doesn't simply describe Christ's humility. He doesn't stop at this humiliation of Jesus. He goes on through and he, he highlights the result of that humble mindset. He details out how God exalted Jesus to the highest cosmic position. To the highest position of authority. The highest position of honor. Precisely because he humbled himself. And it's a, it's a glorious ending of this passage. But Paul's purpose in sharing even that ending is to continue to incentivize us toward this same kind of humility. He's reminding us that God rewards this kind of humility in the end, and He rewards it gloriously. The low path is the only path to true greatness and eternal glory. So tonight, Paul's going to describe both Jesus' humble condescension, that humility, and His glorious exaltation, and both of these descriptions function as, as incentives, powerful incentives, for us to adopt this humble mindset, this other-centered mindset of, of Christ. So that's, that's going to be our outline tonight, two incentives that's going to motivate us to adopt the mind of Christ, to have this mind among us here at Timberlake, and in particular in our little college ministry. So if you would, let's just look at the text in general, and I'll, I'll pick it up from verse 1 so we can get full context. It's the verses we covered last week. So, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and there are, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind, Paul's saying this mind I just described, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours or which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, the condescension of Christ and the exaltation of Christ in this text. And these are two powerful incentives for us to to adopt this humble mindset. That's why Paul elaborates this text about Jesus. So let's look at this first description and this first incentive to humility. And we're just calling it the humility of Christ. What incentivizes us to humility is when we see the humility of our Savior. When we experience it. When we receive Him as our humble Lord. So if you look back with me in verse 6, he says he's, he's describing Jesus who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul wants fixed in our minds just how low Christ went for us. He starts high, right? With Christ's eternal status as God. And then he goes lower with his embodiment as a human slave, and then to rock bottom by describing his execution as a criminal. He wants us to see the dramatic contrast the unparalleled humility of the Son of God, the unreserved self-abasement for our salvation. And he does this so that we're incentivized toward it too. So let's just unpack these, and then we'll, we'll apply this point kind of toward the end. Let's take these steps down, kind of let's follow the condescension of Christ all the way down to the bottom. All right. So notice initially that Paul says he did not exploit his divine status. Now, you're going to have to hang with me on this, okay? Okay? You're going to have to hang with me here. Paul says that Jesus did not exploit his divine status. Look with me again in verse 6. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this verse has a couple moving parts that we need to nail down. But at its heart, what Paul is saying is that Jesus was and is God, but that he didn't use that to his own advantage. He'll go on to say that Jesus did the opposite, actually. He used his power to serve, to redeem. He submitted to the worst forms of dishonor, to humiliation and pain. He submitted to all of that for our greatest good. But let's look at a few of these phrases, okay? Paul starts us in the deep end or kind of at the highest point, by describing Jesus as existing in the form of God, he says. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because God has no form. Right? God is spirit. So, what does he mean that Jesus exists in the form of God? And in the form of God, before he became a man, well, it's another way of saying that Jesus possessed the very nature and character of God. Okay? It's a way of saying that he possessed the very nature and character of God. And again, you, you NIVers, you two out there, um, the NIV nails it in the translation. It says, being in very nature God. That's the idea of this being in the form of God. Being in very nature God. That's exactly the point. Paul's starting out of the gate by reminding us that Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Godhead. Jesus wasn't created. He's always existed. He's eternal. And you see this clearly over in John 1. John there, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he existed. He was in the beginning with God. And then later in John's Gospel, Jesus himself is reflecting on his pre-existence and the glory he had before he came to earth. And in John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Right? Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had. So he possessed this glory with God before the world was ever created. So Jesus clearly is eternal, preexistent, and shared God's own glory. Another way of saying he's in the form of God. So Paul starts us here with the divinity of Jesus to show us how Jesus thought about his position of power and authority, how he regarded his equality with God. He goes on to say that even though he was in the form of God, he, quote, did not count equality with God as, and here's the ESV, as a thing to be grasped. Okay, here's another moving part. This thing to be grasped. Okay, according to this translation, it sounds like Jesus is choosing not to reach out for equality with God. Do You see that? It's like it's, it's, he's, he's regarding this equalness with God, something he shouldn't reach for or grasp. And I don't think that's what's going on at all here in this text. Okay? This is a very, very difficult phrase to nail down. Uh, it doesn't occur anywhere else. And really outside of the biblical literature, it doesn't occur anywhere else. There's some cognate words. I won't get into all the details of that because um, you guys are going to fall asleep. But if you compared a bunch of translations, okay, if you just kind of sat down and went on to the Bible, Blue Letter, whatever it's called, Gateway Bible. What's that called? Okay, Blue Letter Bible, that's not the one I'm thinking about. Bible Gateway. And you just parallel them all, because you can do that. You can parallel like five translations. You would see at least three different options from these very smart translators. Okay? And I was telling some boundless leaders, I read an entire academic article on this one word, trying to nail down the meaning of it. There's something going on out there. what's that? Yeah, right outside, right outside the window there. So, just try to stay focused, okay? You got lots of distractions. Hopefully, whoever's hurt out there is okay. Um, so, I was working on this word, and I was trying to nail it down, and I'll spare you the details. I'll just give you the takeaway, all right? I think the best way to translate this phrase is how the, guess what, NIV translates this phrase, it says, he, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he did not exploit his divine status. It's not that he wasn't—he was seeing equality with God, and he was not grasping for. It. He was—he is equal with God. He shares that divine status, but he's not using it. He's not exploiting it for his own self-interest, to his own advantage. He's not exploiting this status, this divine power, this divine prerogative for his own self-interest. And that—that that flies in the face of everything we experience here when it comes to power and rulership, doesn't it? When someone has absolute power, like Caesar in Rome or some dictator today, what happens? Absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely, right? That's the phrase. And that means fallen people use absolute power for their own advantage, for their own honor, for their own glory, for their own advancement. They force others to serve them, to give their lives for the dictator. And Paul's saying Christ did not do that. Even though as God, He had all the rights and privileges rightly. He did not use His power to look out for His own needs, so to speak. He didn't exploit His divine status. I think that's the point of these words here. Then how did He use that divine status? He used it for the good of His rebellious creation. And He did it by astonishingly entering into that creation as a human slave. So we could say it like this. He he embraced the lowest possible status. He embraced the lowest possible status. Verse 7. He didn't... account kind of equality with God, a thing to be used for His own advantage, but what did He do instead? He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. So Paul says He emptied Himself. And it's staggering to think that the preexistent, eternal, timeless, glorious, all-present, all-powerful, divine Son. The Son from whom angels hide their faces. The Son worthy of endless worship of heaven's hosts. that The Son who created all the cosmos. That this God entered into His creation, as Paul says here, as a human slave. Jesus embraced the lowest possible status for us. And Paul describes it here as emptying. He emptied himself. You see that? He says Jesus emptied himself. It's, a, it's an interesting expression, and it's generated all kinds of speculation. But here, I think it's actually pretty simple. Paul is using it metaphorically. And he's saying, essentially, that the emptying of the, he's emptying the significance that's rightly due him as God. The King James translates it helpfully as he made himself of no reputation. The NIV again. He made himself nothing. New Living Translation. He gave up his divine privileges. And that's the idea of emptying here. He's not, you know, pouring out his, his, his identity as God or any of those kinds of things. We don't have to speculate about what, what Paul means, because he goes on to tell us in the next two phrases exactly how Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, number one, and by, number two, being born in the likeness of men. So that means that Jesus certainly is not losing anything in the emptying. You know, kind of like if you're pouring out a cup, then it's like you don't have any water in the cup anymore. He's not losing anything by this emptying. He's not ceasing to be God or giving up any of His divine attributes. Instead, He's adding human nature to His divinity. Paul says quite shockingly that God took on the lowest status possible. He leads with this. He took on the nature of a servant, literally a slave. If you remember back, you know, weeks ago to one of our first messages on Philippians, we saw how Paul took on this title as well. He calls himself um, servants of Christ. He and Timothy, servants of Christ, slaves of Christ. Same word. Verse 1. So Paul adopted this this title, but, but Paul is only learning from his Savior. Slaves had no rights. They had no privileges. Their only purpose is to fulfill the will of their master. And this is the nature. This, it's, it's this nature that the eternal God willingly chooses for himself. This means then that within the very nature of God, within his heart, is the heart of a servant. Now that is astonishing. That's breathtaking. It inspires awe. It, it's, 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 it's not beneath our God To take for himself the position of a slave, to put others' interests above his own. And how, in particular, does he take on the essential nature of a servant? Paul says, by becoming an embodied man within his own creation. There's so much mystery here that, as we say, God became flesh that the second person of the Godhead bound himself to a human body. And he continues and will continue to exist in that human body forever. And he became one of us in order to redeem us. And behind both of these descriptions, this servant description and this human description, this, he became a man, behind these descriptions lie two biblical themes. When God entered His creation, He became the true human, the true Adam, and He did that in order to represent humanity and fulfill what Adam failed to do. He came to be fully obedient to God, to earn the righteousness and the glory that we lost. He came to restore blessing to the earth instead of the curse. And He would accomplish all of this, how? As Isaiah's servant. The other biblical theme behind this text. He would accomplish it as Isaiah's servant. By giving his life. By pouring out his soul to death. To redeem God's people from their sin. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Not only did the eternal God embrace the lowest possible status. But he also condescended to the most disgraceful fate. Jesus humbled himself to the most disgraceful fate, to execution on a cross. This says in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, here it is. We finally arrive at the bottom, at the most shocking and disturbing and humbling part of this text. And that's that God would die. And not just die, but would willingly experience the absolute worst and most humiliating fate known to a human being in the first century. And that's death by crucifixion. Paul packs a lot into these statements, so let's, let's take a look at them. As a human, Paul says that Christ humbled himself in a certain way. He says, by becoming obedient to the point of death. His humble obedience in death is the ultimate act of self sacrifice, of counting others as more important than himself, of obsessing over the needs of others above himself, if you want to use the language from last week. Notice also that Paul frames the death of Christ as obedience. Obedient to the point of death. Why is that? That's because he's emphasizing that Jesus' death fulfilled God's purpose. So, to use Isaiah's language, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to atone for the sins of his people, for your sins. So, think about that. Paul is drawing out that Christ humbled himself for your sake, he humbled himself by obeying where you had failed by dying and enduring the wrath of God so that you would not have to. And while it's shocking that the eternal God would become part of His creation, and it's even more shocking that He would willingly die for us, it is almost mind-blowing that He would choose to do it by means of crucifixion. Paul expresses his own shock at this by saying, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The grammar doesn't even make sense. It's just like this death cross, you know. And I'm I'm sure you're aware of this, but, but crucifixion was the worst form of execution in the first century. Nobody was wearing crosses around their necks. It was... Terrible for a number of reasons. It was terrible because of the excruciating physical pain, the hours or sometimes days it took for someone to suffocate to death in agony. But it was also terrible because of the utter shame associated with it. It was a death sentence of the worst kind. It was reserved for the lowest of society, the worst of criminal offenses. It was the height of scorn. Nobody, nobody wanted anybody in their family to be marked by crucifixion. Socially, it was the absolute worst fate someone could be sentenced to. And not only would you hang there in hours in utter agony, but you would hang there either completely naked or almost naked. It was so shameful that it was considered impolite or rude to even speak of a cross or crucifixion in polite society. In Roman culture, the subject was avoided almost altogether because of how heinous it was. So when you talk about the shame of the cross, or the I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of a crucified Messiah, that's kind of starting to ring home a little bit, right? So why did God choose the cross? as his means of death. Well, there's probably several reasons we could go into, but here in this text, Paul's drawing out the shame of it. He's drawing out the utter humiliation of what God endured. It was the lowest a human could go. It was the worst sentence someone could receive. It was the lowest a human being could descend. So if we take a step back, and we look at the descent of these verses, the contrast could not be any more severe. Jesus existed in the very nature of God, and yet He did not use His divine nature for His own benefit. It was quite the opposite. He entered into his creation as a human and embraced the lowest status as a slave, and then he submitted to the absolute worst human fate, execution as a criminal by means of crucifixion. So what does that reveal about our Savior? About our King? About our God? It reveals that his heart is gloriously humble. That the essence of the great and holy God is to serve His creatures. And why is Paul showing us this dramatic display of humility? He's showing us that this is the mindset of Christ. This is the attitude of the king. This is how He did nothing according to selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility regarded others as more significant than Himself. How He looked out not for His own interests, but for ours in the greatest possible way. And what sets Jesus apart, what sets Him in a class by Himself, is that He's God. He deserved to be served. He is more important than we are. Yet he willingly, gladly, joyfully gave it all up to serve us. God submitted to execution. God hung naked on a cross, a piece of wood for you, and he did it joyfully. He did it because he loves you. Nothing is beneath him. Nothing's beneath him. Nothing's too shameful for Him to endure. There's no humiliation. He was not willing to embrace to redeem you. And Paul says, it's this mindset we've got to adopt. It's the humble king, this king, who is saying, come, be like me. I have gladly and freely humbled myself to the greatest possible extent to redeem you. Now come. Learn from me. I want you to adopt this way of thinking. Imitate me. Consider others as more important than yourself. Don't obsess over your own interests. You belong to me, remember? I've taken care of you. Be proactive like I was for you. Be proactive to anticipate and meet the needs of others. Is anything beneath you? Nothing's beneath me. Be humble. Forgive when you're hurt or you're wronged. Seek to love. Inconvenience yourself for the benefit of others. I'll help you. I know how. It's so convicting, isn't it? when we think of how self-absorbed we can be in the presence of the one who is so selfless? Who loves us like this? who, Who poured himself out to that extent for you and me? And he's calling us to do the same. And at the same time, as convicting as it is, it is so powerful. It's powerful. It's powerful for us if we can start our day Conversing with Christ. Conversing with Him in this way in prayer. Remembering His humility from a passage like this. Looking into His face. Letting Him wash our feet. Hearing Him say something like, like, like this that we just went through with you. And then thinking about all of those people you're going to interact with in the day. Envisioning what it would look like to serve them. Envisioning Christ beside you at every step. Helping you, loving you, empowering you to take the low road. So perhaps a a good takeaway would be just in your quiet times this week, in the morning, just meditate on this passage. Envision yourself as sort of pulling up the chair to the table with Jesus as his disciple. You've taken his yoke. And he's saying, come follow me. Follow me in in this path in this way of living. So you see and I see how Christ's humility is a powerful incentive for our own humility. <laughs> as powerful as that is, it's not the only incentive he gives in this text for our humility. In the last few verses he adds a second incentive. He goes on to describe how God responds or responded to this incredible act of humility. God rejects the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so our second incentive to cultivate humility is just the exaltation of Christ. It's Christ's own exaltation, and we'll see how that that functions for us as a motivation in uh, in a moment. We'll get there. But look with me in verse 9. He says, Therefore, so... In light of his obedience, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because of the perfect obedience of Jesus, God has vindicated him. He's given him the highest of all honor and authority. And Paul doesn't want us to miss the fact that God exalts those who humble themselves and his son stands as the ultimate example of this glorious exaltation. And I think he intends this future hope, too, to motivate us to cultivate humility. So let's, let's make a few observations about these verses and then we'll, we'll tie it all in at the end about how it how it incentivizes us for humility. Notice that the, the language that's used here is this kind of superlative language. It's it's the highest of, of kinds of language. God didn't just exalt Jesus, but He highly exalted Him. Right? He didn't just give Him a name, but He gave Him the name. And it's the name above every other name. Jesus clearly has first place. He clearly has the highest honor. He clearly has the greatest position of authority, the most powerful of names. And that's because He poured Himself out to the greatest extent. When he speaks of this, this high exaltation, what's he talking about? He exalted him. He's talking about what happened at the events of Christ's resurrection, ascension, his enthronement in, in heaven. It's kind of a, I know it's three separate events, but they're all kind of together in Paul's mind. The resurrection, ascension, and enthronement in heaven at God's right hand. Christ has been installed as the cosmic ruler. He's been installed as the ultimate king of heaven and earth. And that's what assures us that the mission is going to keep advancing, even in the midst of this opposition. He's going to continue to seek and save the lost, even if we go to prison. He's going to continue to build his church. Gates of hell won't prevail against it. Why? Because Christ has been highly exalted to the position of highest power. But what's Paul talking about with his name? He says in verse 9, it's a name that's above every other name. So that means this name, whatever it is, it it outranks any other name in both honor and authority. Whether it's human authority or angelic authority, it's above every other name. Any other name that can be named, like it's it's above that. And notice also in verse 10 that, that God has given Jesus this name for a purpose. And he says that every knee should bow. Meaning when this name is announced... The knee of every creature in existence will bow in obedience to Him. Paul is very comprehensive. He says the knees of heaven, the knees of those alive on earth, the knees of everyone under the earth that's died, human and angel alike, dead and alive, great and small, king and peasant, every knee will bow. And notice that not only will knees bow in submission, but tongues will confess, tongues will acknowledge the name. So what is it? I think it's that the name is the Lord. The Lord is Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that God has granted Jesus his own name, Yahweh, or the Lord. He's not saying that Jesus became divine at this moment. We saw that earlier. He's always been divine. But he is saying there's a unique sense that because of his obedience, Jesus has granted this cosmic rulership as Yahweh incarnate. And that every single creature will either willingly acknowledge it or be forced to on that final day. It also helps to know that Paul is alluding to a particular prophecy from Isaiah found in Isaiah 45, 23. It's Isaiah 45, 23. And there, Isaiah predicts a day when every knee will bow to Yahweh, to to the God of Israel. Every tongue will swear allegiance to the God of Israel. So, a common prediction. They, They knew that was coming. And here, what Paul is saying is that God himself has granted his own name, Yahweh, to the second person of the Trinity, to this Jesus of Nazareth, and that this cosmic reign will be carried out by him. And that redounds to the glory of the Father. There's no competition here between the members of the Godhead. And while we're talking about Jesus as Lord, you've got to know that this this declaration that Jesus is Lord... Uh, that rang out in Imperial Rome. Why is that? Because in the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. That's said that all the time. Claiming anyone else as Lord could land you in prison. But Paul is subtly reminding the Philippians and us today that every knee will bow, including Caesar's, including President Biden including every world ruler who might threaten us into silence, their own tongues will one day confess either to their everlasting glory or their everlasting shame that it's Jesus who is Lord. And so will your tongue, one way or another. So what's the takeaway for us as God's people Remember that Paul is still incentivizing his church toward humility. So how does this exaltation of Jesus, how does that motivate us to be humble? Well, it does it in a couple ways. Um, I think one way is just we realize that it's our cosmic ruler that's issuing the command to be humble, to adopt the the mindset, right? Um, He's not suggesting us to pursue it. It's not like a good idea. This is the cosmic Lord and everybody's going to bow in submission to him one day. So, he's redeemed us for this very purpose, to, to glorify him by considering others more important than ourselves. So, I would suggest not dilly-dallying with humbling yourself. Uh, let's zealously get after cultivating this humble mindset, because it's, it's, it's the best thing for us, but it's, it's the Lord who is issuing the command. And the next thing I would say is that I think Paul intends us to see that God exalts the humble. God exalts the humble, and that's an incentive to be humble. Because if we're honest, humility is hard, right? It's hard to continue to take the back seat to the needs of others. What if I'm overlooked? What if I'm forgotten? What if I'm taking advantage of? What if I'm hurt? Because I'm humbling myself and I'm serving others. What if I miss out? Because I'm preferring someone else and seeking their good instead of my own. Paul is implying here, by Jesus' own example, that humility is lavishly rewarded by God. Now, of course, our our humility is not going to be rewarded to the same degree because Jesus is in a class by himself. He's God. But it doesn't mean that the Lord is not going to exalt us. He certainly will resurrect and reward the humble. No act of service will go unnoticed by our humble Lord. You can actively accrue eternal reward by pursuing acts of humility, even tonight. And we're not saying that your salvation is resting on this, that you're accruing, you know, you're earning your salvation. That's, that's secure by Christ. We've already seen that. But your greatness in the new earth, your greatness in the everlasting kingdom of Christ, that is in direct proportion to the humility of your heart. To the humility that you cultivate in the here and now. And when you get to the kingdom, and this life seems like a vapor, because it was, it is. What will matter there are those insignificant little acts of humility. Today, not all those career advancements and all the things you did to step on others to get to advance yourself, and that's not going to matter. What's going to shine like the sun is the humility of your soul as you've learned to imitate your king who took the lowest imaginable human position and the lowest imaginable human fate, crucifixion on a cross. That was what he got to live for, right? And it was rewarded to the greatest degree. And I think that's incentivizing. It's incentivizing to me, at least, to to think about those small little unnoticed areas that I can just pursue Christ's humility in So, it's obvious and clear that we've got to let this vision of Christ sink into our hearts, right? We need to know this text. We need to to see His humility, His exaltation. And just remember, if you're going to prefer others and you're going to seek to meet their needs in any kind of sustained and joyful way, this has to drive you. You've You've got to know the humility of your Savior. His heart is humble, And lowly, his heart cares for you. His heart's going to to build you up and sustain you in the midst of these things. And you have to know him that way. Or you won't consistently act in humility. And I just want to end with this interesting kind of thought. So Christ humbled himself. He was God. He descended to the lowest point imaginable. Death on a cross. God highly exalted him. He's highly exalted now as our glorious king. But did you know that when we get to the kingdom, that our exalted king still has a heart to serve us? Did you know that? He is going to continue to serve his people in the exalted state. Look with me over in Luke 12. We'll end here. I just want you to see this. Luke twelve, we'll pick it up in thirty five. This is in some teaching that Christ was doing with his disciples and those that were standing around. Luke twelve, thirty-five. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So essentially just saying. Be active, be ready, be serving, you know, be, be faithful while you're waiting for Christ to return. Be pursuing these things like humility. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that's the master, will dress himself for service and have them, that's the servants, recline at table and he will come and serve them. The essence of our king in his exalted state is still the essence of servant. And so just let that vision of Jesus refresh you tonight. Come to him if you're weary and heavy laden. He's going to give you rest. Take his yoke upon you. He is humble and lowly of heart. And know your Savior in this way. And you'll find tremendous motivation to be humble. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's hard to... um, It's hard for our hearts to uh, just fully perceive the extent to which you've humbled yourself. So I pray that in spite of my weak preaching, that your spirit would take these truths and implant them on the hearts of of our church, of our our boundless group here, and that you would just continue to mark us. Uh, May we be a people known by the humility of Christ because we know you, and we've experienced your humility We pray that you would give us vision to see uh, the coming creation, the new creation, the kingdom, um, in all of its glory, as coming very soon. I know many here are on the the young end of life, and it it is hard to see and anticipate that day, um, because there's so much of this life out ahead of them. But I pray that you would help them just not minimize this life, but see past it to the glory of the kingdom, the exaltation that's coming, and that you would alter their value system to pursue these kinds of things. And we we humbly just lay these requests before you. You know what we need. And we just thank you. We stand in awe of how you served us and love us even now and how you will in the coming kingdom. And uh, just mark us with that kind of same servant's heart. We pray in Christ's name.